It's May 26, 2021. Welcome to the new reality edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. First up, uh, we'll have Sam Gon, the third from Nature Conservancy, and he's here to tell us about the water bears. And of course, yes, I said water bears. And then we'll be joined by Professor Kurt Pauli and computer science student Brian Shelfont, and they're both here to tell us about the ACM, International Collegiate Programming Contest. But I want to hear about water bears. And, of course, Sam Gon is here, Nature Conservancy, and he has recently had a tardigrade or water bear named after him. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hello, Robert. Great to be on. So, Sam, you got to tell me now, uh, you know, this this uh, naming of the water bear, we'll, we'll kind of get into the, the name and everything, but... Uh, when did you find this water bear, and where did you find it? Well, I was a, I was a grad student at the University of California, Davis, and Davis happens to have an entomology department and a museum that was, at the time, run by one of the water bear experts in the world. There's just There are always just a handful of them um, in existence, and we happen to have one at UC Davis. When I graduated from Davis and I decided to, to, with my Ph.D., and I decided to celebrate by taking a hike with some uh, fellow graduate students through Haleakala, that uh, water bear expert, his name was Bob Schuster, um, asked me whether or not uh, I could collect some dry moss for him. And so that's what I did, because water bears like to eat moss. And so... Um, he handed me a whole bunch of brown paper bags, and he said, all you have to do is find some dried-up moss, put it into the bag, write down your location, and mail them back to me. And that's what I did. And after three days of going through Haleakala, and I got permission from the rangers to collect small samples of moss and from various locations, I sent them to Davis, and he came back a few months later saying that he had found 31 different kinds of water bears. Um, in Haleakala Crater, making that location the most the most water bear rich location on the planet. Is that right? Third, yeah, so amazing. I was telling the rangers afterwards they should put up a "Don't Feed the Bears" sign for Haleakala <laughs> National Park. Now, now tell me. I mean, you know, I've seen pictures of water bears, but what do you know? What do some of the different species kind of look like? I mean, are there different characteristics that distinguish one from the other? Well, yeah, there are. There are a lot of different species and. And uh, water bears all have eight legs, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they're all kind of blimpy-like, and some of them are armored, and some of them are smooth. Um, they're all really small. The largest one is maybe barely over a millimeter in length, and the one that was named after me, Claxonia ghani, um, is less than two-tenths of a millimeter long. That's like much, much smaller than the thickness of a human hair. So you really do need a microscope to see these guys. And so, you know, of the 31, was this the one that was kind of like only uh, unnamed or were others relatively rare? Well, you know, I collected these in 1985 and it was only named after me a few months ago. And the reason is, um, is that uh, after the collection was made and Bob Schuster did some tentative identifications um, to see how many species there were, and he found, he said, 31 different species some of which he easily recognized as ones that already had names, mm-hmm. and others were just un- unidentified, um, maybe belonging to a particular genus. And so he had those all prepared as microscope slides. And then a few years later, he never 
never got to it. And a few years later, he passed away from cancer. And so they were just sitting in the entomology department um, collections for decades, right? Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, uh, someone knew that uh, he was an expert in tardigrades and that there might be specimens sitting in the, that museum waiting to be identified. And they asked for a loan of all of his collections um, from that museum and went through them, working them up and comparing them to known species. And they found this new one and they saw that I had collected it. And, and so they got in touch with me and asked for more information on the location and the habitat. And I was happy to give them that. And uh, they wrote up this new species. And because I had helped them out and because I was the one that collected it, they decided to name it after me. I was so honored. Wow, that's a that's an incredible story. So, you know, when he when he passed away, I mean, did you kind of think, well, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm glad I helped him collect some stuff. And I guess, uh, uh, you know, it's there in some archive, but uh, maybe for the rest of, uh, you know, antiquity. But, you know, this person that came into the picture that, you know, followed on with the research, I mean, did you know that was going to happen? That was just by chance. Um, that was pretty much by chance. However, <laughs> the community of folks that study water bears is a small, tight-knit community. And I'm sure that uh, when he was um, thinking about where he would go to find specimens, mm -hmm. um, he knew that Bob Schuster had been working on water bears for decades. It was, it was his life's work. And so he suspected that there would be un undiscovered, I mean, undescribed species um, in that museum at the University of California, Davis. Wow, that's a great. So, uh, in essence, it's not. It wasn't because of a slow process. It was just because you know the the the, the primary key scientist passed away, and it was sort of just sitting there waiting for the next generation to take a look. And that's pretty much it. And that was it. Was a lot of fun because prior to that, nobody even knew that Hawaii had much in the way of water bears. And so when we made that initial discovery that there were 31 different ones that, that were gathered in three days at Haleakala, and that Haleakala was the richest place in the world for water bears, that made the news. And uh, and then it and then it quieted down again for like like 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, okay, Sam, I gotta let you go. But before I let you go, I'm gonna ask you like when you gonna when you gonna make your uh, uh, Claxtonia Gunai T-shirt so I can buy one. <laughs> yeah, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. Maybe we'll make a plush toy. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Keep me posted. Let me know when that plush toy comes up because uh, uh, I want to be the first one to get. To you. Yeah, okay. Mahalo, Sam, for joining us. Okay, aloha. And of course, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Professor Professor Kurt Pauli and student or graduate Brian Shelfont, and we'll talk about the International Collegiate Programming Competition. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe, and I'm happy to welcome Kurt Pauli from uh, the Hawaii Pacific University. He's an associate professor, professor of computer science. And Brian Shelfont, who graduated from HPU, uh, computer science student and a team member for, I guess, the uh, 2020 International Collegiate Programming Competition. And here they're here to share some insights into this international competition. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you, Bert. Great. So let's start. Let's start off with Kurt and uh, uh, Professor Pauli. I mean, tell us, you know, what is this competition about, and and 
have have you been you know involved with this competition for a while it's 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 an international competition so uh, and I know uh, HPU has been been kind of involved with this for a number of years. Uh, yes, Bert. Um, this is the largest and most prestigious programming contest in the world, although there are a lot, but this is the big one. And it's an international contest. For example, last year, there were in there are regionals and world finals are the two main things. And there were about 60,000 contestants from about 3,500 universities and about 100 countries. Uh, on six continents uh, competing. And so the, I've been involved with this um, since we, when we compete, there are different sites. We're in the Pacific Northwest region, um, which is a tough region. So we're competing simultaneously against schools like Stanford, Berkeley, University of Washington, University of British Columbia, some of the top computer science schools in the, um, in the country, in the world for that matter. And we have six sites where people are competing simultaneously. So it's three-person teams, and at the beginning of the contest, they get a package of problems, and they have five hours to solve them, and mm-hmm. they're on their own. And they're writing programs to try to solve the problems. So that's the, that's the overview. And we first uh, created a site in Hawaii in 2003. So I was the coach for that year, and I've been involved with it every year since. So is is uh, the competition just uh, one day in the year <clears throat> that everybody spends five hours, or is there a <clears throat> uh, kind of a buildup that that people compete in in regionals and then they you know they ultimately uh, go to this uh, this sort of big final uh, competition? Well, for us and for most people, the big contest is the regional, and it's that one contest and. Then a very small group go to the world finals. And we've just recently added sort of a West Coast division and a North America division uh, before the world finals. But our, our, what we've always competed in is the region mm-hmm. that, that, mm-hmm. I, that I described. And, yes, it's, the regional contest is one day, but the preparation for it can take – some students have spent years preparing for this. It takes an enormous amount of preparation. And, and so this uh, – um Getting the first place in 2020 was not the first time you folks won the top prize. I mean, you folks have won this pretty pretty consistently. Yeah, so in the Hawaii site, which, as I said, was created in 2003, so now we've had 18 contests, and HBU has won 11 out of the 18 contests. We've won the last seven years in a row. Um, although that's never guaranteed. It depends on, you know, students are coming and going, and, and sometimes other um, schools will have stars, and so we're never complacent about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so, Brian, Brian, tell me, uh, how, many, how many teams were you participating on? I mean, was it just uh, the 2020, or were you on a team in previous years? So this was actually my first time doing the programming contest. Um, so this is the, the first time and only time I've ever done it, um, but it was a it was a, a blast. Uh, we started uh, practicing for it back in the, the fall, um, and then because of COVID, uh, the contest got pushed to spring, uh, so we had a little bit longer time to prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, Kurt said that uh, there's quite a bit of preparation that goes into this. Can you can you kind of describe like what is it that you have to do to prepare? I mean, don't isn't is I mean, what do you actually do to prepare for uh, you know a coding or a programming competition? Uh, well, I mean, the easiest way to prepare is just code. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a couple of sites out there that 
of um, the questions that mimic the questions that we we see in like programming contest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you, know, you spend every night, you know, you go over uh, a practice problem, you figure out how to solve it. Um, you have to you know, keep an eye out on what type of algorithm it uses. You know, is is this one you know looking for a different way to sort something? You know, what's the most efficient method? And so you know, practicing that every day uh-huh, um, uh-huh. and get an eye for well, you know, what type of question is this? How can I solve it? So uh, is there a particular language that you're using? Um, well, so, I mean, uh, each of us in, the, in our team, uh, you know, knew different languages. Um, I specialized in Python. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of other guys knew C++. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't matter so much the language as how you use it. I see, I see. So, so Kurt, I mean, in terms of uh, the teams that you've helped to coach over the years, uh, how have you, what kind of, what kind of, um, I guess, uh, training or how do you help them hone their skill? The main thing is to practice and solve a lot of problems. And what's kind of fun about this contest is that those are things you work on by yourself, but then you also practice working on in your team. So you do both solitary stuff and teamwork. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are a lot of resources that have different example problems. Um, what I try to do is, is kind of sort of categorize the problems. This is a geometry problem. This is a graph problem. This is that. And, and try to make sure that the teams sort of cover a wide cat- a range of categories of problems. Uh, but the, the main thing is just working a lot of problems. And, mm-hmm. and you, mm-hmm. anybody can do that, by mm-hmm. the way. I would encourage high school students, even grade school students, to do this because it it sort of helps you jumpstart college if, if you're doing it before college. And, um, and there's so many resources online. I'll mention one, open.catus.com, K-A-T-T-I-S, open.catus.com. That's, that's the website most people use for solving problems. And you can get started with very easy problems and then work up to very difficult problems. So, so Brian, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, the the kinds of questions that you anticipate. I, I know you just mentioned uh, sorting. I mean, what are some of the kind of uh, problem sets that that you folks have to um, uh, b- basically you know code for? Um, so I mean, there's there's so many different kinds. Um, you're you're looking at grid problems. You're looking at uh, like a, a longest path um, or shortest path. Uh, there's just there's so many. <laughs> um, <laughs> so kind of depends on on the, the the contest. So okay, so in the competition, you know, everybody's getting the same problem set, right? To to work on, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know they're they're working on it with whatever code expertise they might have, you know, Python or C plus plus or whatever, right? How does the sure. how does how how do judges determine like one is better than the other? So the, the interesting so thing about these better. problems, the interesting thing is that for this contest, it's pass or fail. It's go, no go. So it's not like other computer science projects where you're creating something and they're being judged on how good is the the, app, the iPhone app or something. Mm-hmm. This it's it's either so you're given the problem description and specifications for the input and specifications for the output, and then you submit your program and it's automatically run on the test input and 
then the output is either right or wrong. So you either it either passes or it's the wrong your answers are wrong, or you might get a time limit exceeded. Those are the main things. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I kind of like that that it's you're not worried about software engineering and how well is it documented. Although all that stuff's important, but here it's like it's either right or wrong, basically. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, uh, so Brian, I mean, I, I guess what, maybe what I was uh, was getting to is, uh, you know, in terms of judging code. Uh, it's not necessarily the 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 elegance of the code then it's just whether whether the code works or not yes and no so uh, your code definitely has to work um, but they also have you know a, a time limit uh, and some resources that you're you're allowed to use so if you go over you know the the time it takes to solve the problem uh, then it won't pass uh, and if you, you know, use too many resources too much memory then it won't pass mm-hmm. so there there's a little bit of elegance to it um, but no, as long as your code works, it'll, it'll it'll work. So, Kurt, when you when you put together these teams, I mean, how many how many students make an ideal team? Well, the teams have three students. All teams have three students, and we've had as many as six teams competing in a contest. Uh, this last time, we had three teams. Uh, there are two divisions. Division one is the harder division. And division two is the the one for people that haven't studied the difficult algorithms, but we had one team in Division One, one in Division Two, and I, I look, I ask other faculty, I ask other students, and I try to catch students as early as possible in their college career. Mm-hmm. And we've now had students from obviously computer science majors, but also math majors, biology, engineering. I'd love to have some finance majors. I haven't had that yet, but pretty much anybody that's interested in programming and. That, that tends to be the technical majors, the ones that are sort of the STEM majors. Okay, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, if, you know, if you have a variety of different uh, majors, they may not all be, uh, let's say, coding experts who haven't come through the computer science curriculum. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, how would you, coach them to kind of to kind of get up to speed. So anyway, we'll we'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Professor Kurt Pauli, associate professor over at the uh, Hawaii Pacific University, and Brian Shelfont, also uh, part of the, the kind of a key member of the ICPC competition. And of course, this is Bite Mark Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum, and if you're just joining us, we're talking to Kurt Pauli, Associate Professor of Computer Science over at Hawaii Pacific University and ICPC team member Brian Shelfont. And of course, so we're talking about the international collegiate programming programming competition. And right before the break, we're talking about the, these teams and and putting a team together. And and uh, Kurt, you were you were sort of uh, describing perhaps the uh, you know desire to get uh, a variety of different students involved from finance to STEM, but you know they may not all be programmers. So how do you how do you kind of get them up to a level of of uh, competition competence that's an excellent observation and question uh, Bert um, so because there are three students competing I didn't mention this but there's only one computer during the normal when you're in physically in in the competition room so only one 
person would be typing in a program. So, so you want to kind of have a strategy and look at the skills of your team members. Maybe one person's good at, at typing, physically typing, another person might be good at programming. And a, a good example would be if you have, say, a math major and a computer science major, the math major might not do a lot of hands-on programming, but may be very familiar with difficult algorithms and be able to, to come up with a, a solution for a problem and then sort of describe that solution or write it down, and then a programmer could convert it into code. Oh, interesting. So there is a, there is a definite strategy in terms of utilization of expertise, also given the fact that you, you know, if there's only one computer, you know, it is definitely a team, a team effort, right? You can't have, have just one guy you know, brainstorm and, and you know, sort of put down code. Now, Brian, you, you know, I, I understand that given the five-hour competition, I mean, there's a certain amount of pressure that exists. And I, I, uh, I didn't get to ask you how many, how many problems, you know, do you have to solve. But in that five-hour five period, I mean, there must be a, quite a bit of pressure to kind of jam through some of these uh, problem-solving problem, problem solving, uh, exercises. There is a lot of pressure. Um, I mean, you, you've got to look through all of these problems. You know, there's, I think in this past contest there were like 16. Um, but you got to look through them and you have to kind of figure out which one's the easiest mm -hmm. um, so that you can get it knocked out quickly. Uh, and that's kind of how it gets scored. Um, but so, you know, you're, you're reading these through and, you know, they're not all easy. And some of them are kind of hard to digest. So you know you're you're you know keep looking at your watch like how much how much time do I have left mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know and and still trying to you know digest these problems and and figure out which ones easier which ones you can do which ones maybe you need to pull off till later um, so yeah there's there's a lot of pressure so so Brian when when uh, uh, Kurt described the best utilization of the the different uh, team members on your team uh, did. Did you have somebody that was kind of a you know like an algorithm guy and a, a, another person that's like a uh, you know strong coder and somebody that can you know like type real fast? I mean, how did you how how was your team kind of distributed across across those expertise? Well, we had uh, an additional complication because we were also spread out over the globe because mm -hmm. um, we didn't do ours in person. Um, so we still we all had access to computers for for hours. Um, but we only one person could submit code at a time. Mm -hmm. um, so, but we um, we had uh, a guy that you know, named Kevin that was our, our algorithm guy. Um, Brett was kind of you know he did a lot of the coding, and uh, I wrote a lot of test uh, test cases for the code so that we could run it um, you know, locally and, and see if it would pass the test uh, before submitting it for final judgment. Um, so that's kind of how we we broke up the responsibilities. That's great. So. And and Kurt, you said that you really like this kind of uh, a competition as opposed to uh, a typical code challenge that you know, like hackathons and 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 where it's an environment where you go in and you know there may be a, uh, a situation that that uh, is a problem problem in in society or or in a in a system and and you know you have teams coming up with ways of perhaps solving that problem, but it's it's more of developing code, uh, whereas this is really challenging the coders to code efficiently quickly in a in a 5 hour period. So so Kurt, I mean what is it that what is it that comes out of it in terms of skill and and the resulting experience? I mean, what is it that you 
encourage students to kind of learn through this experience? Well, the the experience of preparing for the contest, primarily as well as doing the contest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what we've observed is it really increases the programming capability of the students and their problem-solving capability. And I've, I've observed this, for example, by talking to other faculty who have had uh, person X in a class, in a programming class. Then they go off and do the programming contest and go back to the next uh, the next class with that professor. And they, they always observe this huge jump in their programming ability and their problem-solving skill. A real good example is uh, two people that we had in the contest from HPU are now at Google, which, of course, is very difficult to get into. Mm-hmm. And both of them told me that the kind of questions in that interview were pretty much programming contest-type questions, and they don't think they would have gotten a job at Google without having participated in the contest. And I've heard that recently from a lot of people that are going to jobs at, at other places that you get asked a lot of these questions. So it's excellent preparation um, for job interviews. No, that's that's great to know. And, and <clears throat> you know, so, Brian, you're, you're in Michigan right now, right? And uh, was there an opportunity to find a job in Hawaii, or is the challenging jobs that you're looking for located elsewhere? Um, well, so uh, right now I just got a job. I'm working as an IT specialist at Finder Park Zoo, um, but I will be, uh, after uh, a few years, I'm going to look for a you know, programming job, um, but it's, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> I see, I see. And, and where, 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 where would that programming job uh relocate you to uh well i'd actually like to do something remotely um stay here in michigan and, and do a uh you know programming job remotely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and kurt you know you know you see a lot of students going through the program you see a lot of interest in in, in coding uh do you see opportunities here in hawaii and or and if not what needs to change in hawaii that kind of helps create the environment for for this kind of skill set well, I mean, that's, we've been talking about that for a long time in Hawaii, but yes, there are, <laughs> yeah, there right. are right? <laughs> not a new topic. But, but yes, there are um, jobs, and, and we've had students who work locally. Not everybody's going to a shop that's a, a startup shop or a startup, a startup company mm-hmm. or something highly technical. You know, some people are working at IT departments in a bank or whatever. We do have a number of people that have gone to work at Oceanit. Um, okay. That's yeah. one, one of the top science places here, but... And, and as Brian was implying, you know, these days we're now much more used to being online. So we've got people moving to Hawaii, right, to work remotely at computer jobs. And so I think I think people will be more free to go wherever as a computer science programmer. No, that's great. And and uh, uh, I think, you know, the environment here should be prime for more of these kinds of jobs. But, but you're right, uh, Kurt. I mean, there aren't like a lot of ocean it so the, the the challenge for a lot of the graduates are going to be you know are there challenging jobs uh, for them to really you know i guess uh, apply what they've learned and 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 uh, you know grow in their careers absolutely so so um you know in terms of uh this particular program uh where can uh, people check out the you know the, uh, hpu's involvement with the you know, International Collegiate Programming Contest? Well, you go to our website, www.hpu.edu slash CS, CS for Computer Science, um, and we're, we're accepting applications now for computer science majors. 
Um, if you want to, and I mentioned already, open.tatis.com, K-A-T-T-I-S. That's a good place to get started with this stuff. And then our Pacific Northwest region is ACMICPC-ACNWPACNWPacificNorthwest.org. Sounds good. Sounds good, Kurt. So Professor Kurt Powley is the associate professor over at uh, Hawaii Pacific University. And Brian Shelfont is a computer science major. He's graduated. He's in Michigan. And, of course, he was part of the winning team for ICPC. I want to thank you both for joining us and thank you for listening to Bite Mars Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about Nelha and their recent EDA grant award. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find a podcast of tonight's show on bitemarscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at bitemarks at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. Our engineer is David Chung. You can catch us on HPR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HPR app, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You stay safe and stay awesome. We'll see you next week on another, another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Mm-hmm.